Welcome into another edition of the ISO Podcast. My name is Eric Ruby. Alongside me, as always, Carson Breber, the Bills' number one super fan. If you want to see him jump through a table, maybe go ahead and follow him on Twitter at Carsoba. You can follow me at Eric Ruby underscore for all your NBA news updates and so on. So Carson, obviously a ton of NBA news to get into. James Harden is no longer on the Rockets. I mean, who could have seen this coming? We'll talk about it in a second. But first, I'll give you like a little stage. I want you to gloat. You're a Bills fan. You know, this doesn't happen that often. And as me personally, I'm a fan of some franchises that don't have the greatest long-term success. You deserve your moment to shine. I, I want to talk about the Bills a little bit. Pour your heart out, Carson. What's going on? How is the playoffs going? Are you going to jump through a table? A lot of people are saying that I will jump through a table, and I guess that that remains to be seen until the moment actually comes, and we'll see if I can go out there and do it. But it is a great day to be a Bills fan for sure. This is a team that I certainly have not seen anything like in my football-watching lifetime. Uh, Really special, and it was awesome to see the defense come through in a big way against the Ravens just because this team has been so dominant on the offensive end, and the great defense of the past couple years had sort of come back to earth a little bit, regressed to the mean. But... I just couldn't be happier. Not only do I love how good this team is, I love the way in which they excel. They're so fun to watch. The guys on this team are incredibly lovable. And we will see if they can survive, presumably, the buzzsaw that is the Kansas City Chiefs. As long as they don't have a catastrophe against the Browns, then that will be the matchup in the AFC Championship. And that's obviously about as tough of a task as there can be. But I'm optimistic. And even if they can't pull off the incredible and beat the Chiefs, then it's been an incredible unexpectedly impressive run in my opinion tell you what I am rooting for the Bills as out of all the teams left I feel like if you don't have a dog in the race you you gotta go with the Bills because not only is the team great but the fan base is great as well and they were donating to Lamar Jackson's favorite charity the other day I, I mean it's just all around good vibes in Buffalo and if you're not rooting for the Bills you have to be a Chiefs fan or maybe a Browns fan we'll see but Talking about defense, let's talk about a team that maybe isn't going to be playing a lot of defense, and that is the Brooklyn Nets. They completed a four-team trade in order to bring James Harden to the city to team up with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. The full details of that trade... The Brooklyn Nets get, of course, James Harden. The Houston Rockets get Victor Oladipo from the Pacers, Dante Exum, Rodion's Kirooks, four first-round picks... One uh, one from Milwaukee, three from the Nets, and four first-round pick swaps from the Nets. The Indiana Pacers get Karis LeVert and a second-round pick from Houston in exchange for Victor Oladipo. And the Cleveland Cavaliers slide in with a second-round pick and receive Jared Allen and Torian Prince. Obviously, Carson, the name of the game is superstars in the NBA, and James Harden is one of them. The Brooklyn Nets are the new big three in an era of superstar duos. What does this mean for Brooklyn? What does this mean for James Harden? And what does this mean for the NBA? Well, I was already a Brooklyn optimist just because I thought that based on what we had seen, the offensive firepower was pretty overwhelming. And I thought that they were already going to get through the Eastern Conference. They were not my title favorite, though. And that is actually where I remain with this team. Now, I think that they are certainly better. I think that they are more imposing. But 
I do think when you put together three isolation heavy players who are in so many ways not complementary to one another, even though you're still adding offensive talent, your offense is going to get better. It's just not going to get better by a full James Harden, uh, you know, by whatever he could be to another offense. He can single-handedly drive a unit to being elite. This unit is already elite, though, and because he doesn't fit in as seamlessly, I don't think that he adds as much to it as he certainly could somewhere else. Although I'm not most worried about Harden. I'm honestly most worried about Kyrie just because I think that Harden, although he is incredibly ball dominant and generally doesn't move without the ball, it's a little easier for me to see him doing it occasionally, whereas Kyrie is so incredibly isolation heavy. But we saw just in the opening game, yes, Kyrie wasn't there, and it's going to be fascinating to see how these three guys do try to share touches and coexist, but the offense was just, it looked unstoppable. And I think that works when you have two guys who are isolation heavy. Three guys, we might be pushing it, but... KD is just unreal right now. I think that he is probably going to make a pretty solid MVP push when all is said and done this year. And as for James Harden, I think that this is obviously a win. He was clearly unhappy with where he was at in his career. And if you are looking at how your legacy will be remembered, oftentimes it is very singularly decided by do you have a ring or not. And the circumstances around which that occurs are often secondary. They're not forgotten, but they're secondary. And I think that Harden looked at a situation that was a fine basketball situation. The Rockets were going to be a playoff team. And that's why I don't enjoy how much he has diminished that supporting cast. I think that that was really uh, disrespectful and unfair to those guys because that's a playoff roster with James Harden at the helm. But he's certainly in a better situation now and in a situation where he very likely may win a title, and it's a classic case study in maybe a team like the Lakers where they have this incredible cohesion, they have this defensive identity versus the Nets where it's thrown together, not necessarily complementary skill sets, but just overwhelming name power, ridiculous one-on-one offensive talent, and we'll see what wins out. It's kind of one of the stories that has pervaded throughout basketball history, and generally it has gone in the favor of the team that is more centered around synergy and playing basketball, quote-unquote, the right way. But this is really pushing the boundaries of just how talented a team can be and not win the title. Right. And I understand the, I guess, wariness of all of the ISO players, but this is the ISO podcast, Carson. So you know me. I'm all in. Chips all on the table. The Nets are your 2021 NBA champions. Because here's the thing. Even if it turns out that Kyrie isn't the best third option, they're going to figure that out before the trade deadline. Kyrie's going to come back and play, Harden's going to be playing, and Durant's going to be playing. If Kyrie doesn't fit in, they will flip him. But here's the thing. I think he's going to fit in. Because what we've learned in all of this is that the most important thing when it comes to superstars and where it is on their team is how they feel about it. Because what have we seen over the last four years-ish? If a superstar doesn't like where they're at, they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, to get out of there. Example, James Harden. And James Harden's now in a situation where he is happy. And Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, say what you want about Kyrie maybe not enjoying this and maybe not wanting to be a third option, but there's no way that this trade goes down if both of them are not on board with it. I'm sorry, it just doesn't happen because like you said, the team was set up beforehand to succeed. They were going to be a championship contender with just KD and Kyrie. And to be honest, I think James Harden might be the best player on that team right now. I know there may be arguments about him being out of shape and whatever. I think they're a little bit overblown, but James Harden is absolutely killing it. 30-point triple-double, 
in his first game with the Nets, the first player in NBA history to drop a 30-point triple-double with their first game, and the emphasis on all of that wasn't his scoring, but his passing, setting a franchise record with 14 assists. Harden is bought in to Brooklyn. He took a mid-range shot, for God's sake, Carson. A mid-range shot. When's the last time you saw James Harden take a mid-range shot? This is going to be a great situation for him because he's happy. He wants to be there. And if there's one thing we've learned about Kevin Durant, it's that he could play any style of basketball. He's a chameleon when it comes to being on the court. Oh, Kevin Durant's going to be off the ball? So are you going to help off of him and help over to James Harden? Are you going to help off to Kyrie Irving? What are you going to do? Because as much as I understand people's saying that Kyrie would be upset that he might not get the amount of isolation touches, this is by far and away the easiest game of basketball Kyrie Irving's ever going to be able to play because the least amount of attention is going to be drawn to him. And he played with LeBron James, for God's sake. So I think it's going to work solely off the fact that this level of superstar power, two of them at minimum are unselfish in KD and in Harden. Kyrie can still be unselfish himself, and I know he wants ISOs. They wouldn't agree to this unless they knew they were going to try to make it work. And what are you going to do? Put one of them on the court for at a time and let them isolate? That might be some of the most potent offense in NBA history because you have three of the most potent offensive scorers ever. I see it working. I see it kind of working out. But later on, we will talk about some trades. They do have a depleted roster around them, especially at the center position. Do you maybe see that as a point of wariness? Like, look, you have faith in Harden and Durant and Kyrie, but at the end of the day, are you going to be faithful in DeAndre Jordan and Jeff Green being your big man rotation by the end of the season? Well, I do think that that is certainly a point of concern, and that is obviously something that they've sacrificed a little bit in this exchange is the depth and the quality of their supporting cast. But I also think that just to stick with the superstar angle of it for a second more, signing on to something and thinking that you are going to enjoy it and be okay with it is very different than that being what actually goes down. And I think that we've already seen that with Harden a couple times where he seemed to be enthusiastic about Chris Paul after a couple years, that doesn't work out. And then demands for them to bring in Russell Westbrook and that doesn't work out. So I just think that we have to understand these guys are going to have to play in a way they have never played before. Yes, Harden may be unselfish in a sense in that he is willing to find guys out of the pick and roll when they are open or out of isolation when he draws a double or whatever but that is how he plays basketball he's a ball dominant player he does not like to move without the ball and I just don't think that fundamentally changes too often we assume that guys will change and they don't we've seen it with Russell Westbrook now twice we see it time and again where guys who think they're the man and are used to playing a certain way just don't seamlessly make that adjustment so that's why I'm not particularly optimistic about that. But to be clear, I do still think this offense will be sensational. I don't think it's going to crumble because of that. I just think you're not getting the theoretical maximum possible value out of these three guys, which would be the greatest offense of all time. But I do think that the supporting cast specifically, as far as the big men is cause for concern, because defensively we have seen this was a good defense last year. This was a pretty good defense to start off this season and the loss of Jared Allen. It's not like he's some supernova out there, but he is certainly a superior rim protecting option than DeAndre Jordan at this point in their careers. I just think he's a more imposing shot blocker and really more aware, more effortful on that end, everything. So we'll see if they can survive there. And that's kind of the concern to me in part as well is that the Lakers out West have guys with so clearly defined roles, guys who compete at a really high level on the defensive end and who work together to be more than the sum of their parts. And I think that the opposite is going to be true for the Nets. I think that they are going to be slightly less than the sum of their parts. And I think that could certainly be a deciding factor when all is said and done. 
I understand your point about maybe not getting the absolute most out of Harden, Kyrie, and Durant, but isn't that kind of the point? Like, James Harden has gone so long giving his all and putting it all out there that even when James Harden can perform at his best, it's just not enough. And I understand he's played with Chris Paul before and he's played with Russell Westbrook before, but there's no denying that the two players that he's with now are probably better than those other two. And it's a lot easier to give up touches. It's a lot easier to not isolate as much when it's Kevin freaking Durant and Kyrie Irving on the other side of the ball. I understand that people maybe don't like what Kyrie does off the court, but on the court, he is sensational. He's an incredible basketball player. And incredible basketball players, in my opinion, will usually find a way to make it work. I think the problem starts when superstars are asked to give up for maybe somebody they don't see as worthy. Or they feel like it wouldn't be the best way to help the team. But it's a lot easier to stomach maybe not touching the ball at the end of the game in the fourth quarter when Kevin Durant hits a contested three-point shot to put you up. And Kevin Durant is also an unselfish player who seems like he can get his own in any system. Like when he was on the Warriors, it also seemed like a lot of the times they would be running plays for Steph and Kevin Durant would kind of fit in and get his own on that system. Obviously, that wasn't it 100% of the time, but I, I think that that's something that Durant is willing to do and can still be super effective in. And also, James Harden in these isolation, he might not be getting the amount of touches, but since you have Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Joe Harris on the wing instead of John Wall, Christian Wood, and P.J. Tucker, he's going to have so much more space to operate, those points might come easier. And that's something that Harden might want to do at this point in his career. Like you said, they're going to focus on the championships for now. Harden could have stuck it out at Houston, put up incredible numbers, been by far the best player on that team putting full effort. But I think you and I can agree, but maybe it's different. There was no way in hell that was going to turn out to be an NBA championship. No way in hell it was probably going to turn out to be playoff success. This formula brings more chances for playoff success. And what we saw in the finals this last year is that sometimes sheer talent is just too much. Miami was the embodiment of working together, getting more out of a player than what they could bring on any other team, being a unit. And they were in a system and a situation where being a unit was almost as valuable or more valuable than having those superstars. But we're looking at a level of superstardom that we have almost never seen before. In fact, I would maybe venture to say that we haven't ever seen this before. Three scoring champs in James Harden, uh, sorry, three times scoring champs in James Harden and Kevin Durant, and then one of the most potent offensive isolation players ever in Kyrie Irving. We've never seen this before, and we probably never will. That sheer level of talent, I believe, would be enough to get them up. Because sure, it's going to be 130 to 120 at the end of the game, but I'll put my chips on Kevin Durant and James Harden and Kyrie on the clutch than basically anybody else. Yes, the Lakers are close, but I'm still going to roll with Brooklyn. My point when I talk about them not maximizing their value is not that you're not going to have 35 point per game, James Harden, because that is a good thing. I agree with you there. It's that you're not going to have cutting, effective catch and shooting, moving without the ball, James Harden or Kyrie Irving. That is how you maximize value, because I think that when you talk about them just not having as many isolation touches, that would be a good thing. But... What you have to then draw from that is benefit from the gravity of your teammates, move without the ball, get the easiest buckets possible because there is a reason that throughout the history of basketball, it is not dominant isolation scores that drive winning because that's not what equates but throughout to winning the history basketball. Of basketball. But throughout the history of basketball, have you ever had three guys who can get isolation buckets as easily and efficiently in a normal setting? 
in a normal scenario, even with two superstar players, even with any amount of superstar players that maybe play differently, isolation is a terrible option. And moving the ball is by far a better option. But with James Harden, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving, we can't treat isolation as the same option as it is with a regular team. Isolation means points, and it means efficient possessions with these three. My point is, a James Harden cut is easier than a Kyrie Irving contested 18-footer that comes out of isolation. And a way that James Harden can easily create offense is by cutting when Kyrie is demanding attention in isolation situations. Then even if he doesn't get found off the cut, then you've opened up another lane for Kyrie or whatever by drawing the attention of the defense. All these things just make offense easier even if it is isolation. And I am yet to see these guys be willing to play basketball in that way with the exception of Kevin Durant. And I don't know that they're wired that way. And... I just don't think that that's what leads to winning basketball at the highest level. You are right. This level of talent will overwhelm just about every team. And maybe if there were an inferior contender out West, I think that they would be the the championship favorite, possibly just because you're right. We probably have never seen this accumulation of offensive talent in the same spot. I just think when you talk about the Lakers overwhelming the heat with talent, they were the more talented team, but they also had a lot of complimentary players and a lot of guys who found their roles, and excelled in that role. And I think that this year is just more of the same in that respect. And I will take that. We can go back to the 76-77 finals when we had a less talented Blazers team against a bunch of Sixers guy who could get buckets and isolations and who won. It's the team-centric team. That has been the history of basketball. And when you have a tremendously talented team that plays that way and a slightly more tremendously talented team that plays in another way, that also, I guess you could argue the merits of the talent just because the Lakers supporting cast is better and on one entire side of the ball, that being defense, they are so much better. I will take the more complete, well-rounded team that plays together. And I can't really criticize somebody who takes the other just because there is so much talent, but when I talk about them not maximizing their potential, it's not that not it's not that they aren't each going to score 30 points a game because we know that it's the way in which they're going to score, which I think could reasonably more effective than what be more effective than what we're likely to see. And look, obviously, I think we both understand the other person's points, and I think both sides do have some truth to it. And cohesion and all of that, and especially defense, is extremely important. But let's also not forget the players outside of the big three in Brooklyn. Joe Harris is going to have almost no attention on him. Do you understand how dangerous that man can be, especially just as a catch and shooter off of all that attention? Even DeAndre Jordan, right? Like that five, those two players, you are going to be able to get the best out of them because they're going to be basically left alone. Like everybody else on this roster, on this supporting cast, they have some solid pieces and they could still make some moves. Everybody's going to be able to play above their talent level, in my opinion, because so much emphasis is going to be put on stopping those three guys. And, like I said, James Harden is an incredible passer. If not one of the best in the game, him, LeBron, like Jokic, I think you could put him in that conversation. And you can make a con- you can make an argument that he can and will lead the league in assists this year, and he's done it before, right? That's an important thing. I understand that isolation is about buckets, but James Harden does have vision. And he does have a willingness to pass. And it seems like he's kind of on a mission to rebrand himself. He was saying he's a great teammate. His conditioning is great. He has reasons to kind of change his game a little bit. And we saw him change it just a little bit in the first game. So when Kyrie comes back, I don't think it's so far-fetched to see James Harden move off ball a little bit. Because we've never seen him 
be able to move off ball because of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving attracting that much attention. It's been Eric Gordon or Chris Paul. And like these are great players in the Chris Paul's case or good solid role players in Eric Gordon's place or other players that have gone in and out of Houston in the last couple of years. But there's just a significant difference, and I do think James Harden's willing to bend the way he plays a little bit if he's still going to be able to impact and still going to be able to win. At the end of the day, James Harden wants to win a championship. No ifs, ands, buts about it. He understands what this is about, and like you said, it is about championships at the end of the day. Look, Brooklyn's got a lot going on, and is going to have a lot going on for the future. So let's talk about the other teams in this trade. Let's break it down, because me personally... I see a lot of winners in this four-team trade. So let's break down the other three sides of it. Houston, Indiana, and Cleveland. Out of those three, which would you say maybe had the best day overall? Who was fist-pumping in the GM's office the most out of what they got back in return for their trade? Well, I think it's certainly the Rockets because it seemed like for quite some time that there was not an incredibly hot trade market for James Harden, and then you get... Four first-round picks, four pick swaps, and a player of real significance if you're trying to win right now in Victor Oladipo, obviously from a third party entirely. But I certainly could not imagine them getting this kind of haul, and I'm glad that they waited out for this because this is a fantastic return for them. It is obviously upsetting that you have to give up Harden in the midst of his prime. At the same time, you were kind of in basketball purgatory. You weren't going to be a contender. You were going to be a playoff team, and that is always good to be competitive. And when you have a guy like Harden, your fan base will always appreciate him, and he will forever be a legend of the franchise. But when you have given up your entire future, which is effectively what they did with the Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook trades, to then just be average because of the circumstances you were forced into, that's a terrible situation to be in. And now they have almost made up the deficit that they put themselves in with the Chris Paul and Westbrook trades just in this one move. And so I think that for them, having the chance to redeem their future once they realized, okay, we're not going to be in contention, that is a big win considering the fact that it didn't really feel like they had that much leverage for a while and it didn't really feel like they were going to have an offer of this magnitude. Right. And of course, you have to look at the money aspect as well. They get Victor Oladipo back, who's on a one-year deal. This is his last season. He's going to be a free agent. They're getting cheaper. They're obviously looking towards the future. They're looking to rebuild, but at the same time, they could compete in the West. John Wall, Victor Oladipo, Christian Wood, Eric Gordon, P.J. Tucker, DeMarcus Cousins, barring these other trades that might happen, or Tillman Fertitta and the front office in Houston being like, sell it all, get rid of everybody, get as much picks back, and basically going the OKC method, which I think is definitely a possibility. They have set themselves up for the current day and to still compete, to keep their fans happy, and also for the future. You get a look at Oladipo, who has been injured, has kind of been off and off, and been looking for a new situation. You give him that new situation and see what he's like, see if maybe you want to bring him back. And I think Houston is a big winner, obviously. You get four first-round picks, four first-round pick swaps. I mean, not only are those great for the future, but at the same time, you can swap those into a big-time level talent or maybe get a superstar trade back for those. I want to focus on the other two teams, the Cavaliers and the Pacers. I think value-wise, the Cavs might have had the best trade overall because Jared Allen 
is a great piece for them in the future. Yes, the Cavs have a billion centers this year, but they're not thinking about this year, right? They're thinking about, okay, who's going with sex land in the future? And, and Isaac Okoro, Shetty Osmond, Larry Nance Jr. Well, now you have your big man down low, Jared Allen, who's proven he could be effective, who's proven he could be a center on a playoff team. That's a big deal for Cleveland. And then, of course, Indiana getting a young star in Karis LeVert, money controlled over the next three years. Unfortunately, yes, there was a mass found. I think it was in his kidney the other day during his physical. Obviously, we have to be thankful that that was found. This trade might have actually saved his life, which, as grateful as you can be, you kind of question the NBA's healthcare system and the fact that it took a random trade in order to even get this figured out and checked. But anyway, I digress. Obviously, assuming, like they said, they are assuming Levert's going to be able to come back full strength. That's a great pickup for Indiana and a team where... Old Depot was fine. He didn't pull a James Harden. He wasn't out there bashing his teammates, but he didn't want to be there. And it was pretty obvious he didn't want to be there. Trade reports had leaked, so you get him out of there. You get a cost-controlled wing that was playing at an all-star level before he had some injury concerns of his own. Indiana and Cleveland kind of sneak in here. They facilitate the trade, and I think they come away with two of the best young pieces out of all of this. Yeah, I think that Cleveland's involvement in this trade is kind of funny just because comparatively, they're contribution and also their haul is less significant certainly but I do agree with you I like the Allen pickup and I think that he is certainly a guy who can fill the rim runner rim protector role pretty well more on the defensive end I wish that offensively he was a little bit more aggressive but I think that as they build to the future that is a guy who will be a value to them and then for the Pacers this is a really fascinating team that we have constructed here because so many of their really important contributors are not really in their prime necessarily yet. And I think that Lavert is another guy who was in that tier. You have Sabonis at 24. You have Miles Turner at 24. It remains to be seen how much he still has to grow and if he'll stay around for the long term. But then you have Lavert at 26, Brogdon at 28, TJ Warren at 27. I am interested to see how Lavert fits in within this system just because what we saw in Brooklyn was really an incredibly ball-dominant, pick-and-roll-heavy, isolation-heavy player, and he's incredibly skilled with the ball in his hands. I don't know how much they need that in Indiana because they kind of already have their isolation bucket getter in TJ Warren, and Levert is better than that, and he can also do more as a facilitator. But I'm just going to be interested to see how they make this all fit offensively, but certainly best wishes to Levert. Hopefully, everything goes okay with him. Kevin Pritchard, the Pacers GM, seems optimistic that they will have him back relatively soon, he said, so... We'll see how they take care of all of that. But I think that it's certainly a good haul for them, an incredibly valuable player. And you're right, in exchange for a guy who just didn't want to be there in Oladipo. And it seemed like they did a good job of keeping that under wraps after some reports emerged about him literally asking other teams if he could go play for them after games. Because it didn't seem like it was really disrupting their locker room from the outside. But at the very least, they get a young, incredibly talented guy. And Oladipo, um, you know, gets to a situation where he'll hopefully be happier. Right, and I think that Levert has shown he's not afraid to be able to get his own and fit into a system. I mean, even when he was looking like an all-star, he was playing with D'Angelo Russell, who that was his first all-star season. He's played with young talent. He's played with current talent, Durant, Irving, this year. Obviously, he wasn't on the court all the time with them, but 
they found a way to make him an effective player with other effective players around him. And I think that's really important. And I think a change of pace is good for him. And he could probably be the most potent offensive weapon on that team at his peak. And he's not afraid to pass either. I really like that pickup for Indiana. Now, before we move on and, and maybe talk about some trades of our own that we might bring in the league for this season, I do want to explore the other side of this Harden trade because Brooklyn wasn't the only team that was thrown in the mix, especially heavily. The Philadelphia 76ers and Ben Simmons specifically were talked about a ton. In fact, to the point where it seemed like Ben Simmons was told by the front office he was going to get traded, get ready to get traded, get ready to maybe move to Houston. So I just want to ask you personally, Carson, if you are a GM of a team, what do you value more? having multiple first-round draft picks in the future or having a current all-star, possibly all-NBA talent like Ben Simmons on your team? Because as much as I love personally stocking and, and keeping some draft capital for the future, money in your hand is better than money that you're looking at down the road. And Ben Simmons is somebody that can alter a franchise and can really bring change in the NBA. So maybe not the four and four, but how many picks would it take for you maybe to not think about Ben Simmons? How many picks is Ben Simmons worth? Because to me, that's what Houston almost maybe picked here. If they had both on the table, they picked the draft capital over the current player that they could have on their team. Well, and the reports weren't just that it was going to be Ben Simmons. It was Ben Simmons and Tyrese Maxey, who I think is very much on a star trajectory, has been incredibly impressive just as a pure bucket getter up to this point one of my favorite guys coming out of the draft and he has certainly lived up to those expectations up to this point so I think it's an important question because what's so fascinating about the Nets picks is you really have no idea what they will be it is possible that down the road because this is obviously going over the next eight years so there is a point at which it's possible that the Nets don't have any of these guys on their roster and they are just terrible and then you're getting really great draft value for that with those pick swaps I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case so I think that I honestly would have probably leaned Sixers just because we do know that at least for the next couple years these are going to be picks in the mid late 20s that you're getting if you're Houston and that's not franchise altering stuff it's great to have a lot of them but when you have the immediate star level guy who is also 24 and still has possibly another level to go to and can certainly be with your franchise for a long time and a guy at 20 who is already showing real star flashes I think I probably would have gone for that it's a tough spot that Houston is in just because the members of their core are kind of jumbled as far as the timeline and all that they just brought in John Wall clearly they I don't think would have done that if not for thinking that he could play with Harden but then of course they would have still been stuck with the Westbrook deal but they have this weird mix of veteran young guys and that trade would have just made that even more pronounced but I think that I probably would have gone for those guys just because they are to me, certain commodities, certainly Simmons, and I think that Maxi is going to be a really good NBA player as well. Yeah, I'm on the same page. And if I was a GM, I would probably get in trouble for trading too many draft picks, and I'm pretty sure they've implemented rules because of GMs in the past. Because personally, in any sport, like the Deshaun Watson stuff in the NFL, if if I'm Miami, yeah, I'm trading my picks in two of four. Like, getting that superstar talent, and hitting on that high first-round draft pick is not as easy as a lot of people might think that it is. And I'm the same way with OKC. If I'm Sam Presti, I'm, yeah, I'm looking at those picks as, yes, it's it's great, but 
You don't know where they're going to end up, and you don't know what the player's going to be like. There's a lot of unknowns, so I like to trade that for a known. Look, it's going to take some time to, to see really who the real winner of this hardened trade. And I don't even know, do we call it the hardened trade? Because there's already been a hardened trade. Probably call it the hardened Brooklyn trade, whatever. But I think that overall, basically every team came out with certain senses of positive aspects for the future, right? Indiana gets a young star in Karras, gets rid of Old Depot. Cleveland gets a young center of the future. Houston gets off Harden, which is a huge ease of its own, plus bringing in Victor Oladipo and a bunch of first-round picks, and of course, Brooklyn gets a superstar. So it got me thinking, and it got us thinking, what other trades could be mutually beneficial in the NBA this season? Now, I'll be honest, I, I couldn't really think of maybe any on this level of grandeur of a James Harden trade, but we've got some pretty interesting ones, and Carson, I'll start it off because mine involves a team very near and dear to your heart who has a pretty big piece missing from them right now after losing Jeremy Grant and Plumlee in the offseason. Denver's defense has been, mm, let's say, less than satisfactory. So what if I told you, Carson, we can fix that? And not only can we fix that, but we can help another team go towards the future and focus on what they're trying to focus on, which is shedding money and draft picks. The Houston Rockets and the Denver Nuggets. P.J. Tucker and Daniel House Jr. For P.J. Dozier, R.J. Hampton, Zeke Naji, and Vlatko Kankar. A top 20 protected pick this year turns into a top 10 protected first round next year and then unprotected after that. What do you think? I like that a lot. I think that for the Nuggets, you're talking about the uncertainty of draft capital. They're not really giving up all that much in that respect. So maybe the Rockets, but, but I think for the Rockets, it makes sense just to take the flyer on at least getting a pick that you have control of because PJ, Daniel House, they don't really give your team any immediate value or excuse me, they don't really give your team any long-term value. The question to me is just the balance that the Rockets are really trying to strike between being competitive now and building for the long-term because with Oladipo in here now and with John Wall on a really immovable contract, they are somewhat committed to this core. So I do think they would probably like to be competitive, but I think that certainly for the Nuggets, that would be a big win just because maybe you're optimistic about RJ Hampton. Maybe you don't want to give up any sort of draft value at all, but you are right. There is certainly a glaring hole there. And that is actually what my first trade addresses as well. It is certainly more hypothetical because this could never happen. But what do you think about a Jeremy Grant and Mason Plumley trade for Michael Porter Jr.? Because I think that this is actually a mutually beneficial deal. I know that obviously MPJ is an incredibly valuable, intriguing young asset, and he was really impressive on the offensive end for his first few games in Denver this season. I just think his value is effectively a, as a great pure shooter, a good cutter, a good offensive rebounder. All those things matter, but... It's not like he has some skill set that isn't duplicable, and it's not like he's this great creator for himself off the dribble at this point. So to me, I would rather have a guy like Jeremy Grant who has flashed this year in a big way creation off the dribble that could be, in my opinion, a legitimate third option, and then also we know can do the catch and shoot, maybe not quite as well as MPJ, but still well, and can be that real plus wing defender. And then Plumlee, his loss has been so significant for this team as well because now they have no semblance of rim protection with the second unit. It's Isaiah Hartenstein. They also lost some of his facilitating. So... I say we kind of just hit the reverse button on this whole thing and uh, get those guys back into Denver, even if it means giving up the young MPJ. Look, I, I'm not going to lie. 
I was looking at maybe a Detroit-Denver trade as well. But to be completely honest, the way that Jeremy Grant has played this year, am I wrong to consider him a better asset right now than Michael Porter Jr.? I think that most GMs would disagree with that just because, I mean, Grant's been incredibly impressive. The way that he scores 25 points per game, though, is not in a way that you would ever see in a real high-level winning system. He's a funky guy, and I do really admire his ability to score off the ball and on the ball, and I think that we've really seen him do that in a way that we never had before. So maybe you're right. I think it's close. I thought about just doing a Grant and MPJ straight up, but then I thought, realistically, the intrigue of Michael Porter Jr. at his age, averaging 19 a game at his size with his handle and his shot, I think he's probably still worth more in the eyes of most than Grant. So that's why I threw Plumlee in there as well. That's fair enough, fair enough. And, you know, Denver is just somebody where it feels like they need to make a move, you know, because they have so much there. And and Jokic is absolutely incredible, just a a bulldog. And even getting down a little skinnier, he's he's (laughs) being more active, more mobile, while still able to use his weight and push people around. So I'm with you there. We we had to get some defense to Denver. I do think my trade is is a little bit more likely. Uh, I concur. But yours yours is intriguing. (laughs) Uh, yours is intriguing. Let, let me throw in my second one out there. This one's a little bit more boring, but stick with me here. The Nets need a center, right? They need somebody who's going to rebound. They need somebody who's going to be able to finish around the rim with no attention on them. And I think back to myself and, huh, who's put up some incredible rebounding games that's available to get on a cheap contract? Well, hello, Sacramento Kings, with your 18 centers on your roster. How about this? The Kings get a flyer on a young wing in Bruce Brown in exchange for Hassan Whiteside. Straight up. The money works. No picks. Both teams, I believe, make the rosters fit a little bit more. It's not sexy, but it works. So you're saying literally just Bruce Brown straight up? No, not even a second? For Hassan Whiteside. Yep, it's Hassan Whiteside. You're not giving up anything else for Hassan Whiteside, bro. I am the biggest Hassan Whiteside skeptic that there is. But Bruce Brown, even though I like, he's kind of got a Swiss Army Knife skill set, and I was enjoying him a little bit for Detroit because I tend to enjoy Detroit players from the 2019-20 roster who are now all gone, being him, Kennard, and of course Christian Wood. He's interesting. I still wish that he was a more reliable shooter, so I think you might have to throw a second in there just because Whiteside, yes, is not the kind of guy who drives winning, but at his current value, is worth picking up. So I, I like it for the Nets. I think that... It certainly does plug a hole, and we'll see. I obviously don't want Hassan Whiteside playing. I mean, hell, if I'm the Nets at this point, throw a second-round okay. pick in there as well. And now I, I mean, it'll, look, it, look at, at this point, if, if you're the Nets, you can't be stingy with your draft capital. I I don't know if I'd even ask. I mean, it's also Sacramento, so who knows what they would ask for. But to, to me, if I'm Sacramento, the value I'm getting from this trade is, look, I've got some young big men. I've got some young guards that are doing great. I need somebody that can maybe play guard wing along with Halliburton, along with Fox, and and can play with maybe Marvin Bagley if he's still going to stay there. And Hassan Whiteside, well, maybe he's a better and more valuable player now. If I'm Sacramento, he doesn't mean that much to me right now. He's not really adding that much value. I'd rather take a flyer more on a young player. But that that was something where if it's a second-round pick that's stopping you and, and you're Brooklyn, trade it. Hassan Whiteside's your center off the bench. That can really... I mess with some teams as well because he's just huge at the end of the day you get some rim protection you get some rebounding and 
if anything's going to make Hassan Whiteside buy into he's not the number one option on the team, it's playing with Kyrie Irving, James Harden, and Kevin Durant. And I do think that this really can be seen as a win-win because I do like Bruce Brown. I just don't think he has really any value in Brooklyn. And I think that you could see him doing some interesting things long-term. Again, when he had the ball in his hands a little bit more in Detroit, did some impressive things as a playmaker out of the pick and roll. He's a guy who competes on defense and is a plus there. Can be a good cutter. So, so I like that. My next trade is a little bit of a bigger swing. And this one, I don't know. I'm interested to hear what you think because I have sort of mixed feelings about it in some ways, but I had to add in some stuff to make the cap work out. So this is a Sixers-Raptors deal. Kyle Lowry to the Sixers for Tyrese Maxey, Danny Green, Mike Scott, and Terrence Ferguson. It's a lot of value for the Sixers to give up, probably more than I was looking for. I wanted to just do Maxey in a first. But ultimately, I had to throw in Danny Green to make the cap work. And then the other two guys, although they're both solid NBA players, it's just kind of, eh, you do what you got to do. But for the Raptors, I think as they realistically should probably be looking to their long-term future here, you get a guy in Maxi who, again, is a centerpiece. He's not a proven star, which is why maybe it makes sense to throw in some more certain value like a Danny Green back to Toronto. But I do think that he can very likely be a 20-plus point-per-game scorer long-term. And then for the Sixers, you get... A guy who can close games for you from the perimeter, can be that kind of shot maker, can facilitate your offense in the half court in a way that maybe Ben Simmons cannot, can knock down shots off the catch so you don't lose floor spacing there as a plus defender. That to me, and another thing that you have to consider here is how the Sixers strike the balance between really making the push all in for right now versus saying, okay, let's wait out our value with Maxi because long-term maybe he can be that closer for us, he can be that plus defender, which I think he can, but... If they're looking at their window of opportunity and saying the Simmons Embiid relationship, we can only tolerate not leading to a championship for so long. Then you go in on Lowry and I think it gives you a legitimate fighting chance against everyone in basketball, including the Nets, including the Lakers. I think it makes them a much better team right now. The question is long term, is it worth the value? It definitely raises their floor immediately. Kyle Lowry as a third option, even with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, he fits in, he can play with all of them, he can defend, he's a leader, he's won a championship, like that's definitely something that the 76ers need, but I do feel like that trade might be unlikely. I've got a couple 76ers trades of my own, so so let me throw my two out there and then we can maybe debate between the three, which is the best slash most likely. Both of my trades involve Ben Simmons, because... The 76ers' willingness to trade him and to involve him in James Harden talks, to me, means that they understand that the current concoction of this team, the fit of Simmons and Embiid's, while it might work, it's not looking too great right now. So the first trade is between the Trailblazers and the 76ers. The Trailblazers receive Ben Simmons. The 76ers receive C.J. McCollum. Anthony Simons, Gary Trent Jr., a 2021 first-round pick uh, protected in top 10, and then a 2023 first-round pick pretty heavily protected, eventually turning in to a second-round pick if it doesn't convert. Um, So the 76ers have C.J. McCollum as their ball-handling perimeter player that can shoot. Gary Trent Jr. is a wing who can also shoot out there, a young player, and then possibly some first-round picks that they can flip into another rotation player. The Blazers get Ben Simmons, a defensive monster, which is going to fit in great with them, a great passer, somebody that can play alongside Dame, even alongside some of the bigs they have currently, and is also under contract for a while as well. Well, my second trade is between the Wizards and the 76ers. This one, a two-for-two deal. 
straight up. Wizards are getting Ben Simmons and Terrence Ferguson in exchange for Ish Smith and Bradley Beal. Okay. What do you think of those two trades compared to yours? Okay, so starting with the Blazers one, this is something that we heard rumored last year. That, in my opinion, is way too much value to give up for Ben Simmons because individually, I like all those pieces so much. And CJ, I think, is on track for a career year. He's already producing offensively at a level we've never seen, and you can question how much does he really drive winning, and I think that's fair. But in combination with Anthony Simons, who I still think has a really bright future, and Gary Trent, who should 100% be starting for this team, and it's ridiculous that he isn't, is the kind of player who can really impact winning right now. I don't want to give him up. I think that the combination of those guys are probably more valuable, in my opinion, than Ben Simmons. And then you throw in a couple first-round picks. I think that that is too much. The Wizards one is interesting. And I think that what you have to consider there is that's totally a win for the Sixers, in my opinion, because when you have that level of a perimeter creator in Bradley Beal, then you are immediately in a different tier because that is the thing for that team. Right now, Tyrese Maxey has to close games sometimes as a rookie or it's Tobias Harris. You just don't have that elite level shot maker that you theoretically could. The question for me with the Wizards is that's great because they are acquiring a young asset, but what in God's name do they do with Russell Westbrook? Because I do not want to watch Ben Simmons and Russell Westbrook play basketball together. I would rather be hit by a train. That does not sound fun to me at all. And I really like Ben Simmons, but (laughs) no way can I put him alongside that kind of another ball dominant just absolute non-shooting player. I think if they if they make this trade, if they go through with it, then you have your young pieces in Simmons, Rui Hachimura, Denny Avija. Like you you have your young pieces, I think you're a lot more willing to attach some picks to get off of Westbrook okay. and maybe trade him to another team. So like getting Simmons in essence is you saying, "All right, let's forego the draft for the next couple of years. Let's bet on our young superstar talent along with the other young talent we've accumulated, try to get rid of Westbrook in whatever way we can and move on with our lives." Revisiting the Sixers Trailblazers one. What if we took away a first round pick and The reason why I think that both teams would maybe be a little bit more likely to send this is because the combination of uh, of Dame and CJ and Ben and Embiid, I think they've both proven that, well, they can both be all-stars, maybe, maybe in the case of CJ McCollum, who hasn't been an all-star, but has played at an all-star level. They could both play well. You can have a winning team. It's just not championship-level material. And at this point with Portland, I get that you like what you're doing, but it's not championship-level worthy it's not working in that way you need to shift things up and I don't think that with CJ McCollum on that roster you can shift things up enough I think you have to move him in order to change it maybe you keep Anthony Simons maybe you try to flip him or Gary Trent or whatever work it out with the Sixers if you think that's too much but I think Ben Simmons is a very high level prospect worth a lot and he's somebody that Ben Simmons and Damian Lillard will attract free agents, and they have other players on that team that are very effective, and I think that that could be a really, really great piece for them. So I think that both of them kind of fit in and are more valuable on the other teams than in their current situations. I agree with you from the CJ perspective in that he would be filling that closer role that we've talked about in Philly, and that would be great for them. Obviously, Ben Simmons is a better, more valuable player, drives winning more, has more upside. All of that is true, is certainly, you know, one of the best defensive players in basketball, whereas CJ is a minus there. And the thing that I struggle with is I just don't think Simmons fits in Portland. And I think that we have seen too often in Dame's career, he's been stuck with non-shooters and his offensive value has been suffocated because of it. And the 
surrounding cast, just when guys can't knock down corner threes that Dame is drawing so much attention, he's drawing doubles out of the high pick and roll. You have people coming out 25 feet to guard him. He creates so much space. And even this year, we see Rocco can't punish guys for that. Derek Jones Jr. can't punish guys for that. Back in their Western Conference Finals teams, Mo Harkless, Aminu couldn't punish teams for that. That is painful for me to watch, and that's not the role that Simmons would be used in. It would be fascinating because he's not going to be your primary ball handler in the half court, obviously, because you have Damian Lillard. So maybe use him more as a role man in more of a Draymond Green kind of offensive role, and then in transition, he pushes. I don't know. I just see too many issues there with playing Simmons and Nurk or realistically Simmons, Nurk, Rocco, whatever it is. I just right. I understand the defensive value that is certainly there, but you already have plus defenders on the wing, and I just worry about not having enough spacing for this offense to flow as well as it could. Right, and maybe it doesn't make them immediately better this season, or maybe they have to make other trades surrounding it, but they do have good assets, and they do have pieces, and I think a Simmons-Dame core, well, it might be a little bit weird to figure out in the half court, that level of passing and, and Dame's level of explosiveness on offense, and if Simmons is used right, I do think that they could figure that out, and I do think it is a better situation for Ben as well, and I think that Ben is also under contract for another five years. Let's remember that as well. Like, it's a long-term deal, and maybe this season it isn't the best, but I think if you're trying to win a championship in the next three, four, five years, having Simmons on the roster will help you more than McCollum and vice versa for the Sixers. All right, I've got two big ones left. Do you have any other ones with, like, major names or anything? And then if you do, we could throw those out there and then finish off with some lower-level ones. I do not have any more big-name deals. Okay, so let me introduce you to this Clippers-Rockets trade. Now, there's one thing we know that Lou Williams and Patrick Beverly like. It's being traded back from the Clippers and Rockets multiple times. So hear me out. P.J. Tucker, Eric Gordon, Ben McLemore, Broderick Thomas for money. For Lou Williams, Patrick Beverly, Patrick Patterson, Terrence Mann, and Daniel Orturu. Now, the reason why... I have Eric Gordon getting traded away from the Rockets is because I feel like Tillman Fertitta and his broke butt is going to try to get off as many long-term contracts as possible to negate the effect of that John Wall contract and basically try to surround John Wall with the cheapest, most team-friendly contracts possible until that runs out. We know Fertitta does not want to spend money. He's been pretty vocal about it. So you're getting rid of probably one of your longer contracts on the roster and Eric Gordon, a guy in P.J. Tucker who's not going to want to be there. And in return, you're getting a lot of one-year deals and Lou William, Patrick Patterson, cheap three-year deals for young guys, Terrence Mann that you could take a flyer on, and then a cheap two-year deal for Patrick Beverly as well. This way, the Clippers get some more offensive creation with Eric Gordon, some more defense with P.J. Tucker. It doesn't seem like Lou Williams or Patrick Beverly were really fitting into the role so far uh, there. And I think that, yes, maybe it's not talent-wise the best for the Rockets, but I just don't think they're trying to compete. I think they're trying to get as little money as possible while maybe keeping up the facade of competing for the time being. And there's no better way to maybe shed that excess money than giving up a little value in Eric Gordon and P.J. Tucker for that money value on the way back. Well, I think that it's a big win for the Clippers. You get a couple guys who contribute immediately to winning. I just don't see the Rockets doing it even for money's sake because I don't think that they're paying the luxury tax right now. And if they're not paying the luxury tax, then I don't see the incentive to do this because then you're not even getting off of money. So... I like it for the Clippers. Obviously, I think that it's a big win for them. But for the Rockets, it just doesn't make all that much sense to me because you're just you're not getting any long-term value unless you think Daniel Oturu is going to be something. 
or Terrence Mann. All right, fair enough, fair enough. All right, last one. J.J. Redick, Eric Bledsoe, Jackson Hayes, and a 2021 first-round pick, top five protected, a 2023 first-round pick via the Lakers, and a 2024 first-round pick swap via Milwaukee for Kyrie Irving. Whoo. That is a very intriguing proposition. Okay, I actually like that. Um, The only thing is, I don't like Bledsoe's fit in Brooklyn. I guess I don't like Bledsoe's fit anywhere, though. But you're getting some immediate value. And for the Pelicans... Actually, hold on. Let me think this over. Because... Actually, I take this back. If I'm Brooklyn, I would rather have Kyrie than that accumulation of things, I think. It's close... And now I'm thinking maybe I want to take that back just because the value of JJ as a shooter would be so tremendous to this team. That's interesting, though. I guess the other question it's is... It's something where I look at it as, uh, as okay, you've got, you fix your center problem with Jackson Hayes, right? Mm, so you, no, you you've don't. Got a, you've got another... You've, I mean, I'm you've not got playing Jackson big man, Hayes in the finals game for a second. <laughs> he is so far what to go. finals game. Uh, okay, so then you have Eric Bledsoe, who I don't like his fit, but if if his role is just going to be, hey, you come off the bench, try hard on defense, guard somebody, maybe get the ball in your hands, fine. And then I think they look to take those picks that they get and they trade them into another piece. That's how I kind of see them viewing this. And of course, they keep J.J. Redick. He's an extremely valuable piece for them. Him and Joe Harris playing one of them at a time. Incredible for spacing. Um... And then you give up Kyrie, and you take those first-round picks, maybe pair them up with some other young guys on your roster, whatever, trade them for another role player. That's kind of how I see Brooklyn's take on of it. Take on it, And then, of course, for New Orleans, you get kind of your third piece of your, quote, big three with Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, and then, of course, Kyrie. You still keep a majority of your young core and your core there, like, around them. And the players there that, that you're kind of building around are still there. And you free up some stuff, adding Kyrie's shot creation, shot making, which this team does desperately need. It's interesting. And I think that for New Orleans, it would be really fun for this season. I just don't know if long-term it's the right choice. And then for Brooklyn, the question is, do does the aggregate value of those guys really bring more to you than Kyrie? And although I have been the skeptic of having three guys who are so isolation heavy, I don't know. I think it's a close call. But that's certainly an interesting deal. I don't know if I could declare if either team was really a winner out of that, because I think that it could kind of go down in a number of ways for either one. But that's interesting. Yeah, that, that was one that I, I wanted to save for later because it really makes you think for, for, for both teams. All right, so let's open the floor up. Any other small trades, any, anything else you've got on your mind, and then we'll, uh, we'll move on. Okay, well, this is one that I've actually co-opted from you. You came up with this, but because it involves uh, Malik Monk, <laughs> my guy, I would like to talk about it. We have a little Hornets magic action here. Malik Monk and a second rounder for Mo Bamba. Does this team really mean anything? Of does this trade really mean anything of consequence for either team? Of course not. But I think that theoretically, the Hornets do still have a long-term hole to fill at the center spot because I don't think that you want Zeller and Bismack being your guys there. And Mo. He has shown some shooting touch. It's just a matter of him staying healthy and really progressing on the defensive end where he should still be great, theoretically. He just hasn't been disciplined enough there. He hasn't been sharp enough. But we'll see if he can progress into that and could be an interesting rim runner on the offensive end. Why would the Magic do this? Why would they trade for Malik Monk? 
Because I because you think that they should, and I think that they should, and why wouldn't you want Malik Monk? He doesn't play for the Hornets. Maybe he shouldn't play for the Hornets, but man, he is a dazzling talent when he's going. So I don't know. That's an interesting one. I, I think for I think for both I think basically for both sides, my reasoning behind it was like, eh, why not? Mm-hmm. Because if you're the magic, you've got kind of a, a glutton at the center spot, the big man spot. Vucevic seems like it's their guy. He might end up being their all-time franchise leading scorer. There just doesn't seem like a place for Malik or Mo in their respective situations. Flip that up. All right, my last one, smaller one, but for two guys who also don't fit in their situation, I'm interested to see what you think about this. Lonzo Ball for Lori Markkinen and a heavily protected first-round pick. Interesting. Heavily protected. Yeah, I don't think that Lonzo was worth more than Laurie, so I would probably make it straight up. Really? Yeah, I don't. Just Okay, straight up, That's I think he is worth more than Laurie, but I, I, I think I'd still do straight up. Yeah, I think that it's interesting because Lonzo, theoretically, if you put him in the perfect situation, can contribute to winning in multiple different ways, but he has so many limitations as... You know, he can't be your primary ball handler, in my opinion. He kind of has to be playing in that off-ball, 3-and-D secondary playmaking role, can push and transition. Isn't that great next to Zach Levine? Well, no, not really. I want a true point guard for Chicago, and I think that the Levine-Kobe White pairing is just not going to work, and they need a guy who can really facilitate. Lonzo is better than what they have currently, unless they were going to give Sato some bigger minutes. So this is interesting, and I think that for the Pelicans, this would be a win just because... I am still optimistic about... No, I'm not really optimistic about what Markkinen can be, actually. I think that we have unfortunately seen enough of him being disappointing to where you kind of have to come down to earth with what he is. But, at the very least, an incredibly skilled offensive big man who can handle, who can shoot. Um, And that's just a fascinating skill set for anyone to have. So that's an interesting one as well. All right. Well, that'll do it for our trades, our, our mock, whatever we think maybe could benefit both teams' trade. Let us know what you think real quick before we end this amazing episode of the ISO podcast. We would be remiss if on an NBA podcast we didn't talk about COVID in the NBA as as Adam Silver predicted, January has been by far, you know, their worst month. And it just seems to continue and continue to get worse. Obviously we've had Boston have to postpone a ton of games, the Suns, the Wizards the NBA has revised rules. We've had players like George Hill speak out and say, well, if we basically have to be in a bubble and not see our family, but we're still traveling and it's that serious, maybe we shouldn't be playing at all. Aaron Gordon saying, just make a bubble in Hawaii and let you let your, let your family come. Carson, I'm just going to open the floor up. There's been a lot going on with the COVID involvement in the NBA, how they've been handling it, what their plan is for the future. Are you confident in the NBA going forward because the big part about the bubble was that, hey, we believe in the NBA. We know they'll make the right decision, but as we're going into more and more sketchy territory, dangerous waters, more games being postponed, and of course, undeniably COVID becoming a more prominent problem day by day in this country, are you confident in the NBA's ability to maintain this season in the way it's currently constructed? I think that I am because every single league has had cancellations. Every single team has had massive bumps on the road and they have been able to survive up to this point. We've seen it in college sports. We've seen it in the NFL. And I think that one thing that the NBA might have to consider, and this is a few months down the line, so I don't know 
what the COVID situation will even look like, but I do think it would make sense to reinstate some sort of bubble type thing, maybe just for the playoffs, just because at that point, really consequential games, you don't want those disruptions. You don't want to have postponements there. You don't want obviously teams missing valuable players due to COVID, but this is the balance that we have had to strike across all sports here. We are trying to accomplish something that is incredibly difficult in the midst of a pandemic that is, you know, costing thousands of people their lives every day in this country. But I do think that it is possible. I do think that leagues have been able to do it safely. And yes, obviously there are going to be COVID outbreaks. There are going to be cancellations. But do I think that this is cause to say we just shouldn't do this? I don't because we've seen other leagues have been able to survive and sustain it. And yes, we are still in the worst of the pandemic, but it's been bad for a long time and we've still been able to pull it off. Right. And obviously uh, a big question mark, uh, a variable that can change is the vaccine. Now the NBA has been on the record saying, Hey, we're, we're not going to cut the line for the vaccine, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you're cutting the line for these tests. You're, it's like it's like when has morality really been the the mainstay of the NBA? You know what I mean? As much as they are the most progressive, the most quote woke league. Let's be honest here. Cash rules everything. If morality was the issue, Daryl Morey's situation in Hong Kong wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But they backed down instantly because of what? Because of money. Right, They're in this all right now because they want money. They're getting these tests and they're taking all of this away from people who could get tested, who don't have the access to get tested. NBA players get tested multiple times a day. Like I understand the optics of not wanting to cut the line for the vaccine, but at the same time, you've already cut the line. And let's not pretend like morality is this, is this thing that's holding the NBA back, right? So in my opinion... I feel like the NBA should maybe shift its focus and with the distribution of the vaccine, we've seen a bunch of, you know, people say, hey, it's not being distributed correctly. It's not being used correctly. We have doses expiring. Instead of just getting vaccines for the players, the NBA and the teams buy the vaccines for not only the players, but every employee that works for them, like in the office, the people who had worked there before, maybe even the people who have been furloughed or the people who've had financial problems before. You do all that, you turn it into this public campaign for the vaccine because as much as everybody should trust science and, and should take it, it's undeniable that these people's actions and words, those of, of names that people will just recognize, they do make a difference and influence how people act and how people go and do things. They made the difference with voting and they can maybe do it with this because sports do offer something for people in the middle of a pandemic and having the NBA bubble, having the NFL, having the NHL now, having the MLB, like it gives people an escape and it does bring value to the community as long as they're not like really hurting or impacting distribution in a major way I think they can find a way to maybe get vaccinated and by the time of the playoffs they don't have to worry about the players they don't have to worry about that and they can just kind of ease everything down I understand the optic side of it but at the same time you're the NBA right like you're you're a professional sporting league you're about the money don't pretend like you're not and i could see them maybe changing changing face on that depending on how bad things get and how available the the vaccine is yeah and i do think that it's an interesting line in the sand between okay we will exhaust all these tests that other people are having to wait you know if they even can get they wait a week for the results or whatever and we have multiple times a day but 
the vaccine is obviously different because that is actually a thing that in theory can save lives, whereas the test is just notifying you of whether or not you have it. The vaccine is actually preventing you from contracting, obviously, a potentially fatal, fatal virus. So it is slightly different at the same time. A few thousand vaccines. I don't know. It, you're right. Morally, maybe it still isn't the right thing to do, but I don't even know how the morality compares to having the tremendous amount of tests that they have had. It's it's an interesting dilemma that we're in, but I do think that you're right. There may come a threshold at which they just say, okay, this is what we have to do. And I don't think that that's horrible. It's not like we are seeing even now as the vaccines are being distributed. I think that it's obviously not going to all frontline workers. Sometimes you see somebody gets a vaccine and you think, do they really need to be in the first wave of people to get it? Maybe not. And if anyone's going to get that priority, maybe it should be the NBA. It's a gray area, I think, for sure, and we will see if it is necessitated, and it's going to be fascinating to watch it all go down. Right, and of course, you know, if, if all of these teams, they, they have their employees get vaccinated as well, they can maybe create more jobs, economic boom, so on. There's, there's so many moving parts, so many moving pieces, as there has been with COVID and the NBA in general. Obviously, like, we can't make those decisions. It is up to Adam Silver. It is up to maybe just where the world is at, but... Obviously, they're not going to cancel the season. They've prepared for this. I do think that when they have an outbreak like this, they should maybe be postponing and, and letting stuff take a break and calm down. I know that'll feed into the summer, but there's just going to have to be a sacrifice on some end. It's just going to be interesting to see where that sacrifice comes. But something that wasn't a sacrifice was doing the show, Carson. This was a good episode. We, we've been off for a week. You know, obviously some stuff going on in the world that we can't control. But now we're back. James Harden is a Brooklyn Net. There's a new super team in the NBA. There, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of really fun stuff going on. As the league continues to go, we'll continue to break it down. Maybe some of these trades we talked about goes down. If, if any GMs are listening now, Carson and I are both free to, to maybe help you out, to, to give you a little bit of coaching. Uh, make sure you follow Carson on Twitter at Carsobi. Follow myself at EricRuby underscore. Follow the show at the 1v1 show for everything podcast, all of that. Follow us. Rate us five stars. Review if you're feeling saucy. And of course, until next time, enjoy basketball. We'll see you then. Uh-huh.